Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. I'm Bryn. And I'm Maeve. And this week on the show, the WNBA has a new champion, while college football has some personnel changes. And in our feature this week, we take a look at injuries, the impact of hard hits, the line between repair and enhancement, and what's hurting our youngest players. Then it's time for another Fierce Lady. All right, great. So Maeve, what's going on in that WNBA? Yeah, so very exciting. The championship just wrapped up and the Minnesota Lynx won. They beat the Indiana Fever 69 to 52. And this was their third championship in five years. So a pretty dominant franchise. And it was exciting because they had a record crowd watching the game of 18,933. So that was promising. Yeah. That's encouraging. And it was a pretty good matchup because this was a rematch of the 2012 championship. And in that year, the Fever had won. And although the Lynx were uh, rated really highly throughout the season, the team members really expressed some almost like bewilderment that they made it that far because they had uh, a string of injuries and this crazy case of salmonella and this trade deal that almost (laughs) didn't happen. And they also were playing against pretty tough teams in the playoffs. Um, So some of their players, it was funny in interviews, they were like, yeah, I can't believe we made it, but it's great to be a champion. (laughs) God, that's such a difference from what any male basketball athlete would be saying. Like, yeah, we know we're the best. We knew we were going to be here. Right, like hard work, yeah. (laughs) Such a difference for the women's team. But congrats to the Lynx. Yeah, and the last thing was that uh, Sylvia Fowles was named the finals MVP. And talk about a crazy turnaround in a season because the first half of the season, she was purposefully sitting herself out, trying to force Chicago, her old team, to trade her to the Lynx. So she went from benching herself to finals MVP. That's amazing. Well, she knew what she wanted. Yeah, I guess so. Got to drive a hard bargain there. So lean in. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. But Bryn, uh, switching gears a little bit, there's also been some uh, shakeups in college football, correct? Yeah. Um, in the last week, college football has had some big coaching changes, and those named Steve have not fared so well. <laughs> So the first thing is Steve Sarkeesian, um, who is the head football coach at the University of Southern California, USC, was fired after he checked into rehab after a series of incidents in which he made some crazy comments at a USC football function and then blamed it on mixing alcohol and painkillers. And like then that makes he, it seem better? I don't know. <laughs> right. Like that was his excuse and that was the best he could make it Team. But then he allegedly showed up to USC football practices drunk, um, I think more than once. So Whoa. it's clear he has some real issues that he needs to work through. So ultimately, it's probably the best decision for him to enter rehab. But it is a big change in the middle of the season for USC. And then at, over at the other USC, the University of South Carolina. Um, so Steve's Spurrier, in USC this week. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Steve Spurrier, who's the head football coach, resigned after the Gamecocks began their season 2-4 and 4 and 0-4 and in the SEC. 
And Steve Spurrier is kind of this like legendary college football figure. He had 12 years at the University of Florida and then 10 at South Carolina. And he's famous for like being super feisty and sometimes making like taunting comments about opposing teams and players. But overall, he's been a really successful coach. So it's a little bit sad to see him resign with such a poor record this season. Um, But he did make it very clear that he was resigning and not retiring because Ah. I think he still is holding out like a little bit of hope that this won't be his last coaching gig. Well, maybe he can go to the other USC. They need a coach now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just do a little swap. Yeah, that could, that could all work out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. So something else that I don't know about uh, is the University <laughs> of Louisville has had some really, really questionable allegations come out in the last week surrounding their men's basketball program and the potential of a sex scandal. So basically, this book came out that accused the basketball program's former director of operations of setting players and recruits up with prostitutes. And the author of this book claimed that she provided escort services to teenage recruits for four years, arranging strippers and escorts to entertain and provide sex for players, recruits, and even family members of recruits. Um, (laughs) So it's pretty out of control. And it's crazy because the years in question, one of them was the year that Louisville won the NCAA National Championship. So it's like big time recruits and big time teams during this these four years. The head coach says he doesn't know about any of this and investigations are just starting up. So there's obviously a lot more to come, but really some terrible allegations if they're true, but hardly surprising in this day and age when schools are willing to go to complete extremes to lure the top prospects to their schools. Yeah, but I feel like that sort of stuff has always sort of been urban legend. But here's an example where somebody involved in it is saying very specifically naming names and saying what happened. I don't know. It seems legit. So we'll have to see how it plays out. All right. Well, so lots of damaging (laughs) news from college football. And when we come back, we'll take a quick break and then talk about Some other types of more physical damage in sports, we'll be talking about injuries. All right, welcome back. So for anyone who's played a sport, I think it's pretty fairly safe to assume that at some point in your athletic career, you've had an injury of one kind or another. You know, injuries are just part of the game. And they're an interesting part because injuries can be such a huge factor in any match, but they're completely an off-the-field factor and not tactical or anything, but it can make such a difference. Yeah, there's definitely plenty of drama and injuries and so much drama that Hollywood has taken notice. And on Christmas Day, the movie Concussion comes out. And this is a movie that stars Will Smith, and it's based on the true story of Dr. Bennett Omalu. And he is a forensic neuropathologist who made the discovery of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise called CTE. CTE is a degenerative brain disease that's caused by repetitive brain trauma 
and it's often found in athletes. It's been known to be in boxers since the 1920s, but Dr. Amalu's work revealed it in NFL players. So obviously the NFL was not too excited about his discovery, uh, nor can one imagine that they're particularly excited about a Will Smith Christmas movie about it. Certainly Um, not. (laughs) Yeah, but things got a lot juicier because of the Sony hack. And the New York Times reported, quote, in dozens of studio emails unearthed by hackers, Sony executives, the director, Peter Landsman, and representatives of Mr. Smith discussed how to avoid antagonizing the NFL by altering the script and marketing the film more as a whistleblower story rather than a condemnation of football or the league. Just just to be fair, other commenters around the movie have noted that The emails really just reveal nothing more than this one corporate giant, Sony, strategizing its attack of another corporate giant, the NFL, which is known for being particularly ruthless, and that in the business world, this really isn't such a big deal. And there have been some critics- As long as it hasn't come out that there's been like a lot of censorship of the movie to assuage the NFL's fears. And the the last thing is that there have also been some uh, reporters who have written critically of the NFL and they've seen the movie uh, a pre-screening and they've said that it doesn't actually whitewash too much and that it's pretty hard hitting. I mean, my take is really just that, like, I Good. think it's a miracle that this movie got made anyway, that somebody was even uh, willing to take on the NFL on one of their most sensitive yeah. issues. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like something that would more likely end up in a ESPN 30 for 30 than in, like, a blockbuster Hollywood movie. Yeah, so I'm definitely going to see the movie and interested to see how it turns out. But in the meantime, we should let the listeners in on some more background of concussions. I mean, yeah, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a really awful condition that can lead to memory loss, confusion, impaired judgment, impulse control problems, aggression, depression, and eventually progressive dementia. So it's really serious stuff we're talking about here. And PBS Frontline did some research into brain injuries in football and reported that 96% of deceased NFL players who had their brains tested had been suffering from CTE. So while this is like a self-selective group, everyone opted in to have their brains tested post-mortem. Still 96% of the football players tested had CTE. Well, the other disturbing part of CTE is that tragically there have been at least 10 suicides among former NFL players who were later revealed to have CTE. So um, Mike Webster was a player for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he was the first former player who was discovered posthumously to have CTE by Dr. Amalu. Um, He killed himself at the age of 50. And other players include Adrian Robinson Jr., Terry Long, Andre Waters, Shane Dronette, Dave Durson, Ray Easterling, Junior Seo, Jovan Belcher, and Paul Oliver. And... Another interesting part of all of this is that seven of those players shot themselves and a number of them shot themselves in the chest. People believe that this was to keep their brains intact for testing for CTE. And yeah, famously, I know the junior Seau was one of the most outspoken people about 
the the issues of concussions later in life. And he was one of the ones that shot himself in the chest to preserve his brain. Yeah. And another player who we mentioned, Dave Durson, he actually left a note to his family specifically asking them that his brain be donated to the NFL's brain bank for testing. So, so while crazy. it is a self-selected group, there is something going on where these players are clearly in a very dark place, but also in, I don't know, in some way, like sensing that something's not right with them and, it, and it's maybe related to their careers as NFL players. And understanding that the issue is not personal, like it's not something just within themselves, but understanding that this is a way bigger issue and more widespread and that. I mean, tragically, but like their suicide could inform some of the most important research moving forward. Yeah. So in the meantime, after a string of these suicides, there was more and more public attention with every new suicide. And there were actually two congressional hearings in the past decade uh, looking into uh, the effects of head trauma. And Roger Goodell and NFL doctors in both of the hearings denied a link between football and long-term brain injuries. So after that, there was a lawsuit, a unified lawsuit that was filed, which combined more than 80 concussion-related lawsuits on behalf of more than 2,000 ex-NFL players. And it was filed in federal court in Philadelphia the players accused the NFL of negligence and failing to notify players of the link between concussions and brain injuries. And this this uh, court case was filed in 2012. By 2013, the case had grown to 4,500 players and family members. And in that same year, the NFL and, the, and all the ex-players initially reached a deal in which the NFL would pay $765 million dollars to fund medical exams, concussion-related compensation, medical research, and litigation expenses to the players and their families. Uh, But then in a really ballsy move, the judge who was assigned to the case, her name is Judge Anita Brody, she rejected the proposed settlement, saying that the $765 million fund was not enough. So fierce lady to the max right there, making the NFL go back to the drawing board. So that was in 2013, and now just this year in April, Judge Brody, the same judge, approved a a different settlement plan whereby the NFL will pay these retired players with various forms of dementia up to $5 million, probably on average uh, $190,000 per player. And so this could ultimately cost the NFL up to a billion dollars over 65 years. Wow. So... Again, I want to say that I admire Judge Brody for standing up to the NFL and saying, this isn't enough money, go back. And a billion dollars over 65 years definitely sounds like a lot of money. But in the meantime, the NFL, like, easy makes a billion dollars in, like, what, one season or something? (laughs) Totally. But, I mean, I think it is important for that to be enough money that the NFL is serious about looking for ways to reduce concussions in the sport. You know, it's the NFL. So every time they do something, you sort of are questioning, are you really doing this? Or is this just to quiet the the publicity? (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, I think that, you know, that's positive to see that at least they're taking note and that some of the players are going to be compensated for their injuries. Sort of in the realm of prevention, there have been a lot of improvements in equipment over the years, whether that's helmets or pads or other 
technology. Um, but one exciting development. So my parents own a design firm that's been involved in the design and development of a product that is attempting to reduce uh, traumatic brain injuries internally. So it's using the body's physiology rather than using external protection like helmets. And I'm going to refer to this as the Q30 technology. Basically, when you get a concussion, there's this thing called the slosh effect, um, which causes the, the brain injury. And Slosh is basically when the brain, while it's floating in the fluid in your skull, it sloshes against the side of your skull and can cause tearing of the brain fibers. Um, So then this technology basically increases the amount of fluid in your skull so that the brain can't really slosh against the side. It's it's more stable and it's held in place by the additional fluid. So this product that your parents' company is coming out with, is it is it a new type of helmet or like what's the what's the actual object? No. So basically it's a concussion collar um, that you wear around your neck. Um, and it's a, just a little device that athletes can wear comfortably. And it keeps more blood volume in the brain to or in the skull to reduce this slosh effect. It's being worn by some college and high school football teams, a college lacrosse team and some ice hockey teams. And so far in the testing, there have been pretty incredible results between the control group and the and the group that's wearing this concussion collar. So, so- it's pretty encouraging to see that scientists are getting a little bit closer at understanding both the causes of concussions and innovative ways that they can go about preventing them. Definitely. And will this be something that's available that you could like go pick up at the store or order online? Or is this going to be like a contracted to teams type of thing? If you look at how um, in women's lacrosse, those goggles were sort of institutionalized and now they're required, but each player still has to buy them individually. I could Ah. see it being you know, something like that or something like shin guards for soccer, where yeah. it's required for the player's safety, but not an expensive product to pick up individually. Man, that would be so great if concussion technology became just as ordinary as a pair of shin guards. I know. <laughs> oh, so <future>. many brains <laughs> saved. Well, speaking of brains saved, I mean, let's talk about youth players because that's really the fu- the very literal future of sports is youth players and there have been a lot of parents concerned about injuries and specifically parents of of kids who play football about concussions so what do we know about injuries in in young players and yeah i mean it's interesting to look at just over across all sports like what sports are causing the most injuries in young people and basically what it looks like is football and basketball are by far the most injury-prone sports for athletes 19 and under. And 14% of those injuries are to the head. And then the only thing that is higher than that is ankles, which makes sense. I think <laughs> most people have probably sprained an ankle We've all at some sprained point an ankle another. day. <laughs> yeah. So for people under 19 years old, there's 15% of injuries were to the ankle, 14% to the head, Um, 12% to fingers and then knees and face. So it goes down from there. But that's interesting because the, the fact that 
ankle injuries are just as common as head injuries, or rather I should say that the other way, that head injuries are just as common as ankle injuries. That's actually pretty surprising to me because I feel like I sprained my ankle like every other week. And that means that there's like some kid out there who's like injuring his head every other week. Right. I know. And I think think one thing to consider is that it's not just football where these concussions are coming from. Football is definitely, you know, the biggest sport where we see concussions, but basketball, soccer, baseball, even like softball, wrestling, cheerleading, all of these sports are, you know, it's possible to sustain concussions and and we see a lot of them in, in young athletes. Yeah, well, I think since we're now talking about injuries other than concussions as well in youth sports, it's interesting to consider kind of the recovery from a concussion versus recovery from other types of injuries. A concussion, you basically take it easy, rest up, um, lay low for a while until you can come back and play. But there are some other uh, injuries, especially when you start getting into college sports or minor league sports, where there's actual surgery required. And this takes us into a little bit of a different territory in terms of injuries and how to prevent them or how to fix them. So we were going to talk about Tommy John surgery. So... Give us a little background on what Tommy John surgery is and why it's actually like such a household <laughs> named surgery now. Right. So I think Tommy John surgery is the thing that even casual baseball fans are most familiar with. Um, and Tommy John surgery is when players, specifically pitchers, usually get surgery to repair a torn ulnar collateral ligament, which is in their elbow. And previously, this meant that it would be the end of a pitcher's career. But now when when a pitcher injures his elbow and hears that he has to have Tommy John surgery, it's almost a relief because there's this known surgery that can fix him as opposed to, say, a shoulder injury, which could be the end of his career. Um, So it's really interesting to look at. And a quarter of the active major league pitchers have had this surgery. um, And some of them have had it multiple times. So the thing that makes the surgery so interesting to look at is that a lot of pitchers end up coming back and having really, really successful careers after the surgery. And even some that have to have the surgery twice can come back and still have really successful careers. So it's seen it's getting really really popular it's almost like a rite of passage for major league pitchers now um, <laughs> <That's so messed laughs> up. which is so crazy to think about but it's pretty fascinating because some pitchers are even saying that they're throwing harder after the surgery than they did before yeah and I think that this brings up this really interesting question of where to draw the line between reparative measures versus performance enhancement Um, Mm -hmm. So, for instance, performance-enhancing drugs are very clearly outlawed in professional sports, whereas surgery is pretty universally universally allowed. But, I mean, what's the difference if both are increasing your level of play, if you're getting Tommy John surgery and coming back better than you were before? Well, so doctors say that when a pitcher comes in with these elbow problems, you can see that their ligaments were already wearing out well before. So pitchers go in and have the surgery and think that they're throwing a lot harder than before. But, you know, maybe it takes them back four or five years in terms of their abilities. Doctors say that it doesn't enhance it. You know, it's like if you didn't have the skill before, you won't have it now. But it does bring you back like 
it's almost like reversing your aging five years. Yeah. Well, I think that this is an interesting discussion because there's, you know, what the doctors say. And there are a lot of doctors out there who say, like, any surgery is a risk and not all of the players who actually get Tommy John surgery end up coming back. And if you change the definition of what counts as success for the surgery, it's typically delineated as a pitcher who comes back and pitches in one game but that like one game what does that really mean so if you if you change the definition of success and look at pitchers who have come back and pitched at least 10 games then that number drops a lot but the thing is Hmm. that like the big stars who you know are the most followed and get the most publicity they're the ones who have had this surgery and come back and and played a really important role on their team like steven strasberg for instance so right. it's like you're only hearing about the success stories. And so there's a difference, I think, in in what doctors and medical professionals are thinking about the surgery versus what players, coaches, and parents uh, believe about it and its chances at success. Definitely. And it's interesting to talk about that, especially because there's some myths happening where I I guess, well, let's go through the three main myths that come (laughs) along with Tommy John surgery, because this is touching on some of that. Um, So the first is the first myth is that everyone will have a successful outcome from the surgery. And that's not at all true. I mean, it's the success rate is fairly high. It's roughly about at 80 percent right now. But a study showed in 2014 showed that 13 percent of pitchers who had a successful surgery had to have it a second time. So Mm. while the first surgery was a success, you know, that's not a long-term fix necessarily. So 87% of major league pitchers who underwent a first-time surgery returned to the big leagues, but that falls to 66% after a second surgery and performance declined after both surgeries. So, you know, the success rate is very high for a surgery, but it's still a surgery and it comes with risks and there's no guarantees there. Um, Okay, so then the second myth that is heard all the time is that the surgery improves performance, which we touched on a little bit earlier. And 28% of players and 20% of coaches seem to have this idea that the surgery is going to enhance your performance, almost like a performance-enhancing drug. But... (laughs) As we talked about earlier, the doctors say, you know, if you aren't skilled before, you're not going to see a lot of improvement from this. So that is debunked as well from the medical professionals. (laughs) Um, But then the third thing, which we were starting to get into, is the third myth is that young players should proactively seek Tommy John surgery in order to prevent a future problem and enhance their performance. And that is just not at all the the case. But apparently 30% of coaches and 37% of parents thought that this preventive surgery performed on players who don't even have an elbow injury would enhance their performance. And that's just completely false and putting kids at risk. Yeah. I think that Tommy John surgery is also somewhere on the same spectrum if people are going to use it as a preventative measure or as an enhancement measure then, you know, it's a slippery slope. There's been debate about, like, LASIK surgery, which is when you get your eyes not even repaired. A lot of people are getting their eyesight 
not just to 2020, but to like 2015 or something like that. Right. And this is deemed as totally kosher in sports. And a lot of really famous and successful athletes have had LASIK surgery, like, for instance, Tiger Woods, um, a ton of golfers, actually, but also like Tiki Barber and Troy Aikman and some other NFL players. And these athletes have come out and said, like, my vision is not just repaired, it's better than it would have been at 2020. Um, right. So... You know, it's just it's just this interesting line in sports with like what counts as cheating and what doesn't. Drugs, cheating. Tommy John surgery, LASIK, not cheating. Not cheating. I just think that this also brings up kind of like what's the biomedical future of sports? Because we're seeing a lot of lines getting blurred as Every physical motion of player performance is increasingly being tracked and analyzed mm-hmm. and updated um, with real-time feedback. So, for instance, in, in the MLB, there's this thing called the M-throw sleeve. And uh, a player wears this sensor that captures data like their torque or their velocity. And the data is then transmitted to a mobile app. And there's real-time analysis of the metrics. So, you know, that's like one thing I think if you're using it in training or in practice or to like, you know, identify problem areas. But I mean, there's there's a realistic possibility that this stuff could be used during actual games. So there was a pilot program that involved nine MLB organizations that they carried out during their fall instructional league. And after that, the sleeve was granted approval for in-game use during the regular season. So, you know, and then in other news, there's uh, this organization called Kitman Labs, and they've signed an agreement with the Dodgers to track and analyze biometric data and player performance. And this is a company that has already is already operating in Europe with soccer and rugby players. Um, They're saying that, you know, they lower injury rates and all the rest of it and that that's what they want to do for baseball players. But, you know, I just think that it, like, sort of throws into contrast, like, at what point do players just go play the game without any more assessment? Like, where does where does natural talent end and enhancement begin in scenarios like this? And you see, like, players in the NBA using, what is it, like, cryotherapy, where they stand in, like, freezing cold chambers and but then but then it's like does this count as sort of like ruining the purity of the game i'm not sure like why why shouldn't athletes be able to track their performance in new ways as technology allows like i this is definitely one of those issues where i really am not convinced one way or the other that like things should or should not be happening right me neither like i think they absolutely should be able to track everything but it's some of these elective procedures that do have performance enhancing qualities that start to blur the lines. Yeah, I, I just think it's really easy to villainize drugs. I don't know, it's also contextual. And I don't know, I, I guess I just keep coming back to drugs because, you know, why are drugs more cheating than getting LASIK surgery or preventative mm. Tommy John surgery? Right. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) These are the issues. (laughs) I mean, I think part of the argument goes back toward like LASIK improves your everyday life, whereas, you know, steroids don't. (laughs) But (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, so so far throughout this whole conversation, we have just been discussing professional male athletes mostly. 
uh, and youth players, of course. But this is a podcast about the ladies. So what is plaguing the ladies in terms of sports injuries? Yeah, so it's interesting to look at because growing up, I had a lot of things in my mind that people were like, oh, yeah, women are more prone to this injury. You know, men don't have as many knee injuries, like blah, blah, blah. So I looked into it a little bit, and it turns out that ACL tears are the most common sports injury for women. Um, (laughs) Don't you hate when the masses are right? (laughs) I know. I mean, but to be honest, like throughout my years of playing soccer, I saw more ACL tears than just about anything else. So I'm not surprised by this. But it turns out there are tons of reasons for this um, and reasons that ACL tears are more common in women than men, which have to do with anatomical differences, basically like where the ACL sits in your bone is smaller in women. And so the ACL can get pinched more often. It has to do with the alignment of women's hips and how their tibia meets their femur and the pressure during twisting movements. Um, It has to do with female hormones, which is what I always heard. I always heard you were more likely to tear your ACL when you're on your period, which I never heard that one. Interesting. I never I always thought it was like a sexist thing, (laughs) but it turns (laughs) out sounds like a sexist thing. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out that female hormones allow for greater flexibility and looseness of the muscles, tendons and ligaments. So sometimes this can prevent injuries because you're less likely to tear something because it's it's more flexible. Um, But if all the other ligaments in your knee are too flexible, then it puts a lot more pressure on the ACL. And that's where you can see a lot of tears. Um, Double edged sword. I know. So and then the other reasons for ACL tears are just less muscle strength. And the fact that many women start playing sports a little bit later than their male counterparts, which I'm not sure that I buy. But Hmm. there's this idea that women start playing competitive sports later. And so their knees aren't quite as conditioned to the twisting movements. And Hmm. so they're more prone to be injured because they're just not quite as conditioned. But this was a little myth busting for my own (laughs) interest because I'd always heard all of these things. And it's pretty fascinating to hear that there is actual science behind it, especially the hormone thing. I am shocked that this wasn't just like some douche saying that it's probably because I'm on my period. (laughs) Not to mention, like, all of the back problems that women have if they have large breasts. Exactly. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad that we've aired all of these issues out. And, you know, ladies, I don't know, <laughs> do your best <laughs> out there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think it's time for a break. <laughs> when we come back, we will have... We'll have some women who uh, are not being stopped by their hips or their period. It is another edition of Fierce Ladies. (laughs) Fierce Ladies. All right, welcome back. So this week we have a new edition of Fierce Ladies. Um, And it's been a couple of weeks (laughs) since we've had a Fierce Lady. (laughs) But 
This week, we are talking about Justine Siegel, who was hired by the Oakland Athletics to coach its instructional league team, making her the first woman to coach in the MLB. So Maeve, talk to us about Miss Justine. Yeah, so Justine, already a pretty impressive lady before she got this position. She was already the first woman to throw batting practice in the MLB. She did this for the A's and the Indians. And she was also already the first woman to coach professional baseball because she was a first base coach for the Brockton Rocks, which is part of the Can-Am League. So she's already a major trailblazer. Congratulations to her. And she's obviously very impressive. And I'm really glad that baseball is finding a space for women coaching. Um, You know, but like Jen Welter before her, who was the woman hired by the Cardinals in the NFL for their training camp, I don't really think that the headline totally tells the whole story. The Instructional League coaching gig was only for two weeks, and it's already over. You know, while I'm really glad that we've been seeing more and more headlines about women coaching, and, you know, this started last year with Becky Hammond being hired as an assistant coach to the Spurs, and now Nancy Lieberman is an assistant coach with the Sacramento Kings in the NBA, so, you know, props to the NBA, still our fave. Yeah, <laughs> <Love> definitely. <you. laughs> NYBF sports. <laughs> but these other two coaching stories, uh, Jen Walter with the Cardinals and now Justine with the A's, they were both uh, temporary positions and neither of them were hired on full time. So definitely good steps and definitely huge personal accomplishments and I really commend these women because it's very hard to be the first. I just think that, you know, the headlines make me a little mad sometimes because I don't want people to get comfortable and think that we've somehow solved the gender imbalance in sports. Um, Yeah, definitely not. I mean, there was this great tweet from Justine where she posted a picture of the women's locker room sign at the A's, and it said, You know, the locker room sign says women's and she tweeted out like it says women's not woman. Where's everyone else at? Like, I just loved it. But I do also think we should highlight like Justine is a fierce lady because she's also working with an organization. I think it's called Baseball for All, which is advocating for more gender equality in baseball. So, you know, on top of I think First of all, getting this position was awesome. Second of all, her name is now sort of in the media. And so she's able to promote her work with Baseball for All and continue to get more attention for that organization. Yeah, I mean, I think that all all of these developments of women coaching are really great. And I just want it to keep going and I want it to be more permanent and I want it to you know, not be such a a big news story every time it happens. That would be the ideal. Agreed. All right. Well, um, Bryn, I am just so glad that you're back. And (laughs) I couldn't be happier to be back. I really missed you. (laughs) So tell all the good listeners out there uh, where they can reach us so that they don't have to miss us in between episodes. Woo. So you can find us on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. We are on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can email us at nybfsports at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at nybfsports. All right. Well, that does it for this week. So good game, Bryn. Good game, Maeve. It feels good to say that. <laughs>